Okay, we'll be reading all of Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ, who is faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses, indeed, was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of hope firm to the end. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore, I was angry, angry with that generation, and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his wrath, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. You may be seated. Good morning. It's good to uh, be here. It's good to be uh, here before the Word. And I'm going to ask if you would to join me in a word of prayer. Let's ask God's blessing upon His Word of truth here this morning. Father, we're grateful for Your faithfulness. We thank You that You are a faithful God even when we are unfaithful. Your throne is built on faithfulness and truth. Mercy and justice. And as we know the song, great is the Lord and he is worthy to be praised. Father, we thank you that you've spoken to us in your word through your son. You've called us to hear him, to listen attentively to what he has to say. And so, Father, this morning I pray that you would open our ears to do just that, that we would listen attentively. As we look here in Hebrews chapter 3, I pray, Lord, that you would show us your mighty power, that you would reveal once again your superior Son to us, that you would rebuke us as needed, Lord, that we might awaken and walk in your truth. Pray, Lord, that you would encourage us with your words of hope this morning, that we might be strengthened to do your will. We ask that you would open our eyes to see that we might learn 
your history lessons given to us in the pages of Scripture. Father, I pray not for great men and women to be built up in this place, but instead, Lord, I pray for men and women of great faith who exhibit this great faith by your great power working in them. Oh, Father, may we have eyes to see this morning. May we be teachable to hear what you desire to teach us through your spirit. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, many of us here live and operate in the midst of what's known as, among other names, uh, digital generation, right? I've heard it called a digital generation. I've heard it called the I generation. It's sort of a play on words, really. You know, we have our iPhones and I this and I this. And I, but it's also I, I see it as sort of a, uh, interesting that it's I because we live in a very much a, an independent spirit world. Uh, everybody is about themselves, it seems, absorbed in their own gadgets, uh, having these, these tools seemingly attached to their palms uh, uh, and walking around, um, always looking at it. A digital generation. And, and one of the things in this digital generation, as we think about communication, we think about how this generation communicates. Not everyone, but in general, most are communicating by means of texting today. And I realize that even as I say it, I'm saying it with a smile on my face because many of you also know I don't text. And I think as we consider how we communicate today, that the social media driven culture, that we are connected to one another around the world like never before. At the press of a button, we can communicate with someone on the other side of the world. We can actually converse through video as well. See the person that you're talking to right there on the screen. The digital generation acquires information through the lens of what we know as this world wide web. It's a connection that is familiar and friendly to those who were born around the turn of the millennium. Remember that year 2000? Some of you do. Remember all the fears and worries and concerns about what might happen when the calendar goes from 1999 to 2000? Well, those of you who were born right around that time, you tend to have this familiar and friendly handle on accessing and acquiring information. As someone who, who didn't grow up into the frenzy of digital communications. The mode and means of, of the digital generation is deemed to be somewhat chaotic and cryptic and frankly quite confusing. Why would you want to have a gadget always in the palm of your hand, some might say. And it seems that young and, and old live together today with this huge gap. You think about it, just grandparents, parents, children three generations, and they each operate and communicate from the well of what they know, what they have known. And I was thinking about that as I was looking at Hebrews 3. 
And thinking about the writer of Hebrews, and he's addressing the professing church. Some of whom are walking by faith, enduring and persevering even amidst the tensions of internal and external persecution. Some, however, have professed a faith that has been grounded to the intellectual realm. And it's never blossomed into a living reality. I think it's important to note that the people that are being addressed here in Hebrews are still being regularly addressed in many churches today. (laughs) There are still some who have made confession of faith in the past and are in the present by the grace of God living that out for the sake of the one they claim allegiance to. And there are still some today who have shared a profession but are not at all interested, it seems, in living what Jesus spoke of in his word. I mention this context because I want you to get a feel of how the Jewish reader would have received the message especially this word right here in Hebrews chapter 3. Most of us, I believe, have a hard time relating to things Jewish because we're not Jewish. Make sense? I think we have a hard time with this. I'll put my foot in there and say, it's hard. It's difficult sometimes to, to grasp the fullness of it because of the nature, the background, the context Jewish culture. Most of us have a hard time relating to these things. We find it difficult even to track certain arguments perhaps in the text because we're not accustomed to a Jewish culture. I was thinking about that same kind of idea, the generations that are removed from the digital age, right? They can relate with difficulty trying to grasp the technology webs of today. And vice versa, the digital generation of today can't seem to understand how life could have been lived without the use of a smartphone. It works both ways. Context is big. So to help us associate with the Jewish background of the listener in the text, it's important to know the pull of what they were experiencing at this time. The pull was a return to a, a, the practice of Judaism. That was, that was the pull to go back to where they were, a place of familiarity. The Levitical sacrifices, the First Testament or Old Testament way of doing things. You see, these people to whom he's writing many of whom have professed Messiah, the Christ. Some had reached a point where it would just be easier, it'd be a lot more comfortable just to return to their old way of living. And I realize as I stand here to preach this word that you may not be experiencing this same pull to return to the days of the Levitical priesthood. Amen? I realize that. I'm aware that it's a challenge for you to connect with the Jewishness of the situation in the book of Hebrews. It's important, I think, that we at least put it out on the table. (laughs) It's 
It's it's challenge. And yet I want you to know that the purpose behind the book is to appeal to the brethren to bear with this word of exhortation. I didn't make that up. It's in Hebrews 13, 22. Purpose for writing. Bear with what is being spoken. Listen to the Son. Don't drift away from the truth of the Son. Be sure not to neglect so great of salvation. These are things we've already heard. The Son has spoken in these last days. And to this point, He's been deemed better than the prophets, better than the angels. And now, beginning here in Hebrews chapter 3, we'll see that the Son is better than Moses. The lawgiver, the prophet, priest, the deliverer of God's people from the land of Egypt. The one who received his calling from the backside of the desert amidst a burning bush. The one who stood before God and received the Ten Commandments. The one whom God himself spoke with as the mediator between the people and their God. This Moses... The revered and respected leader of the Jewish people. The writer of Hebrews seems to be, as he's going along here, seems to be peeling back the excuses for the Jewish people by showing them a Messiah who is better than any and all of their Old Testament icons. I don't use that in a derogatory manner. Because they were very important. They were very significant to the people during that time. Very helpful and very appropriate for the season. But you see these Old Testament people, many of whom were meant not to be an end in and of themselves, but simply a means of pointing forward to the reality. Who's the reality? Isn't it Christ? And I believe that's what the Hebrew writer is establishing here. Prophets, he's better than the prophets, he's better than the angels. Remember the angels were the ones involved somehow, some way in the mediating of the law, which was a big deal to the Jewish people. And now he's speaking of how this Jesus, this son, this Messiah is greater than even Moses. Now, you know, when you start talking about Moses in the context of a Jewish audience, don't you think you've got to be pretty careful how you speak about Moses? And I think the writer does that very well. Writes with with great care and handling and tactfulness. He's quick to point out what Moses has done. And quick to show how Moses... He's not squashing Moses in presenting the fact that Christ is better than Moses. Superior to Moses. But I believe he has a desire and he wants the listener to hear and to see that this Christ... This Messiah is truly better than Moses. And it's almost like, let me show you how it is so. The reader's list of attachments or reliances seem to be put on trial. They said, the prophets, angels, now Moses. And so while you are here today and you may not be tempted to return to the Levitical sacrificial system today I would gather that all of you have some just like the people he's writing to all of you here today have some 
old attachments. You have some old patterns. Many of which are worldly, of the flesh. You've collected in times past some attachments that once served as your security blanket. Remember Linus? Wasn't it Linus? Who always had to have his what? Always had to have his blanket. It was his security. And you know, as you sit here today, you know what those attachments are. You know how prone you are to return to them, to keep going back to them, to be drawn back to them. Especially when things get tough, especially when circumstances press down on you and trials come sweeping in like a mighty flood. Perhaps the text today will encourage you to place on trial your former list of attachments. Some questions to think through right up front here. Do I find myself reverting to something else for my source of hope? Is there something else to which I'm running for my daily strength and sustenance? Am I endeavoring to live for Jesus or have I been seeking a safe and familiar path to spend my days? Listen, if we're going to follow Jesus, we need to understand that following him isn't going to always be safe and convenient. In fact, I would venture to say, based on what I read in the scriptures, it's going to be quite the opposite. It's going to be dangerous. Maybe one of the reasons few find it. Because there aren't very many who desire to walk that way. Has my life looked more like a hypocrite professing a faith in Jesus, but in actuality really living much like the world. If Jesus is the Lord of my life, how would I describe this life I'm living? Does it reflect a Jesus is Lord profession? Does it show by way of evidence and fruit a Jesus is Lord lifestyle? Some good questions to think through as it pertains to Hebrews chapter 3. As you work through this chapter, perhaps the Lord would bring to your attention other former attachments that might be vying for your attention even now. After declaring themselves to be witnesses of serving the Lord... The people are given a warning by Joshua. You might recall this in Joshua 24, verse 23. He says, Now therefore, put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua in the very next verse, The Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. And it sounds so good, doesn't it? But if you know your Bible, you know that the testimony lasted a total of one page turn. That was the extent of it. Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. It's all the time it took for the people reverted to sin. They go backward and not forward. They walk in disobedience and forsake the truths of God. 
So it seems that the renewal at Shechem was short-lived, wasn't it? Some years ago, many of you made a confession of faith. A confession of faith. In other words, you agreed with God about what he says concerning his son. That's the idea of confession. Amalageo, to agree with, to say the same thing as. So when you make a confession of faith, you are saying the same thing as God would say about his son. And then you're acting upon that. And in acting upon it, you were also declaring that you were willing to put away all the foreign gods that had taken up residence in your heart. What's the status of those foreign gods today, friends? Have you set up a room for the foreign gods to hang around? Have you given place or foothold for those foreign gods to still have entrance into your life? Is there now today any room For Jesus. Remember, this is the one you confessed. The one whose name you professed to follow. Not just speak about in times past. But the one that you've declared that you're going to now live your life for. The text here in Hebrews 3 is a call to consider. Consider is a key word. A call to consider our confession. And the object of our confession is Jesus, the Son who has spoken and embodied so great a salvation. He is the one we've been called to hear. Today, we've been called to hear him. Today, we are gathered together, as at Shechem, if you will, to be reminded and renewed of this great salvation that we share in Christ. Today we are brought before God's word to consider God's son and to consider not simply our profession but our confession. You see, professions abound but a confession of faith is rooted in saying the same thing as God says about his son. And when we confess with our tongue Jesus is Lord We are testifying that what God has spoken about Jesus, that's what we hold to be true. And our lives then align to what God has spoken about the one that we call Lord and Savior. Today, we are confronted with urgency to see the Son as the one to whom we look for all things. Not just on Sunday mornings. For all of life, friends. For all of life. There's a sense of urgency. In fact, you've been given... Listen, this is important for you to get. Simple idea, but profound in its concept. You have been given a today. You have one. Tomorrow, Lord willing, should the Lord desire to allow you to breathe, have breath of life... Tomorrow on Monday, you will get another today. On Tuesday, Lord willing, you wake up. You just might have another today. That word is also very significant in the text. 
a sense of urgency. The text is setting before the brethren the stewardship of our days that each today is to be captured wholeheartedly for the one whom we claim Lord and Savior. Paul writes, it says in Romans 13 verse 11, he's talking about how it's high time to wake up out of sleep. Remember that? And he goes on, he says, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Now, today is the day to set in order what we got straight and said yes to back in Shechem. There's three words that I'd like you just to jot these down if you're taking notes. I think these three words are very significant words, especially in Hebrews 3. The first word is consider. And we see it right here in verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Consider is the first word. The second word we get to in verse 12, and it's beware. Beware. And the third word is the very next verse in 13, exhort. Consider, beware, exhort. All three of these words are imperatives in the text. They're directives. They're not options for the listener. And I believe these three words frame the entirety of Hebrews 3 and help navigate us through the text. So having just spoken of the necessity of the Son's incarnation, chapter 2, and he's shown in verse 18 of chapter 2 how this Son is able... To aid those who are tempted, the writer now moves us to consider something. And and initially, he calls us to consider who we are. Notice the two titles. Holy Brethren gives us a, a, a clue, an indicator of who he's addressing. Holy Brethren, okay? Holy in terms of the position that they have with the Lord God as being one of His, holy, set-apart ones, sanctified ones, those in Christ. He's addressing those folks. He also has them consider that they are partakers of the heavenly calling. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Partakers, it's the same word, metakoi, that's used. We've we've seen it a couple times already in Hebrews. We saw it in chapter 1, verse 9, used of the word companions. We saw it in chapter 2, verse 14, when it said he himself likewise shared, shared in the same. Remember, he, he, he voluntarily came and he took on a nature that was not his Necessarily, he came and became flesh and blood. He shared in that. He was a partaker. We see the word is also used in Luke's gospel, chapter 5, verse 7, of partners, fishing partners, partners, partakers together. And this is a word that speaks of one who is associated with others in a common task or condition. And so here in the text, it describes the saints as those who are associated with one another 
in a heavenly calling. A heavenly calling. We're associated together with one another in a heavenly calling. And the church has a heavenly calling, a heavenly destiny. Reminded of Paul's familiar words in chapter 3 of Philippians, verse 14, where he says, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's pressing toward that goal for which he's been called. We're going to see this word, partakers, uh, reappear in verse 14. You can kind of make a note of that. Verse 14, it'll, it'll appear once again. We see not only who we are, but I believe he's calling the listener to consider who he is. The object of our confession, Christ. And he gives us two descriptors of who he is. The apostle, the only time that I'm aware of that this is used in reference to Christ himself. The apostle, when we think of an apostle, uh, uh, one who is sent, right? Sent out, sent out, commissioned Commissioned with credentials. He's sent, the sent one. He's also the high priest. And we saw last week in verse 17 of chapter 2 that he is a merciful and faithful high priest. He's merciful, he's compassionate to us, and he's faithful and loyal to God the Father. The call is to consider our confession which is grounded and rooted in Christ. We think about the word consider. It has in mind to fix one's eyes or mind upon continually. Continually. And one writer says that that these listeners needed just this exhortation. They were allowing their attention to relax so far as Messiah and the New Testament were concerned. And their gaze was slowly turning back upon First Testament sacrifices. I believe as I read that and I read the text that the church today also needs to hear the exhortation. Now I was thinking, you know, have you grown dull in considering the Christ of your confession? Think about that. Have you grown dull in considering? Fixing your mind continually upon the Christ of your confession. Have you turned your eyes upon something or someone else instead of Christ? Have you started to take for granted that completed work of Christ at the cross? Do you find that days go by when you don't even pick up his word to hear what he has to say to you? Do you sense your decision making is increasingly fueled by the spirit in you and his word of truth? Or is that decision making coming from the well of your own good ideas? A follower of Jesus must stay disciplined. He must be alert. He must be watchful. Need I remind you this morning that those who are in Christ find themselves daily in a battle? 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. Be sober, be vigilant. Because your your adversary, the devil, he walks about like a what? Remember? 
like a roaring lion. You see the picture? A roaring lion. Seeking whom he may devour. Do you think it would be fairly easy for him to devour one who is no longer all that interested in his confession? Do you think it would be a lot easier for, for the evil one who's prowling around, crouched down, ready to devour, not nibble, devour? Remember why he came to kill, steal, and destroy. He's not after just harming or doing a little bit of damage. He's after destruction. I love the next verse in Peter chapter 5. It says, resist him steadfast in the faith. Love that phrase. Knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. In other words, you're not the only one going through this battle. All of you who are marked as Christ's children are in the midst of a battle. And he wants them to know that you're not alone in the battle. Don't quit. Don't give up. Resist him. Steadfast in the faith. Keep going. You remember the prophet? Right after the situation on Mount Carmel? Wonderful event where God showed up. All the people said, he is Lord, he is Lord. And all the prophets of Baal were slaughtered. You remember the very next scene? He feels like, he feels like, the prophet feels like there's no one else. And the Lord has to give, no, I've reserved, I believe it's what, 7,000? No small number. Well, I believe that's what Peter's driving at here. Your brotherhood is also experiencing sufferings. Resist the devil. Steadfast. Keep going. Friends, the Hebrew writer is talking about this very same thing. And time and time again, he's going to keep coming back to this theme of persevering. Keep going. So consider the apostle and high priest of our confession. Consider. Set your mind upon it. Consider what great things he's done for you. Consider, set your mind upon his word that you might be renewed daily in his truth. Consider, set your mind on things above, not things here on this world. Consider to apply one's mind diligently. To fix one's attention in such a way that the significance of the thing is learned. You know him. Consider this Christ who is your confession. Ephesians 4 verse 17. Paul says this, I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. In the futility of their mind. Having their understanding darkened. Being alienated from the life of God. Being alienated. There's a key word. Alienated alienated from the life of God. Because of the ignorance that is in them. Because of the blindness of their heart. He goes on. He says, you've not so learned Christ. You've not learned him in that regard. Consider, holy brethren... 
and sharers together your confession of the Christ. Consider the one sent, the apostle. He was sent to die for you. And consider the one who intercedes, the high priest he's known as. The one who intercedes before the Father on your behalf. Consider him early. Consider him often. And hold tightly to him in all things. And so as the brethren are exhorted to consider, the writer uses the opportunity to advance a larger theme that he's been addressing. Jesus is better than or superior to prophets, angels. Now he's called the brethren to latch on securely and tightly to this Christ. And he goes on to show how the Christ is better than Moses. Again, we talked about the significance of him addressing Moses in the context of a Jewish audience. But I think what we see here is with great precision, moved by the Holy Spirit, the writer informs his audience that just as the Christ was faithful, so too was Moses. Look at, look at this. Holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider, set your mind upon continually, the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him, God, who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. So we see here initially that Moses is brought into the equation likened to Christ in that they were both faithful to God in their respective roles and offices. Okay, But verse 3 begins to draw a mark between Christ and Moses. Christ has been counted worthy of more glory. There it is. More glory than Moses. Comparative. More than. If something is more than, it's greater than. Right? Math people. Right? Greater. Something's greater than. It's it's deemed higher. In this case, better. Superior. On what basis? Inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. Now, Moses seems to be here in the text a representative of God's house. In particular, his house of Israel. His leader. For the people of God. And he was faithful in his work as caretaker of Israel. The Christ is deemed greater in that he not only was with God in building the house of Israel, but in coming to the world, he ushered in a house of God, bought with his very blood. That house we know as the church. Body of believers, the family of God, if you will. Moses was indeed faithful in all God's house. Key word there, in, and he'll come back to that in just a moment. Verse 4, statement of fact. For every house is built by someone, right? Built by someone. Every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. 
Well, that's interesting. He who built all things is God. Keep, keep a hold of that as he keeps talking through this. Moses, indeed, verse 5, again, he's being very careful how he's addressing this. Moses, indeed, was faithful in all his house as a servant. I want you to mark a couple words there. In and as a servant. Moses, indeed, was faithful. The writer's saying Moses absolutely was faithful in all of his house as a role of what? Servant. Servant. That word servant there is, is the only usage of that word here in this book. Uh, it's, it's not your typical word. It's not doulos, bond slave. But it has in mind one who willingly takes joy and delight in serving his master. It, it really speaks to, in large part, the relational component that was involved in the carrying out of his service. If we know anything about the life of Moses, we know Moses and God were, were constantly talking, communicating, fellowship with one another. It's that idea that's being expressed here. He was a servant in all of God's house. For a testimony, it says, of those things which would be spoken afterward. And we'll get to that as we get to Hebrews chapter 11 because there's going to be a, a gallery of faith heroes, if you will. Moses is in there. And time and again, we see that later on down the line, references being made to this man Moses as a testimony. As a testimony to what? Of how great Moses is? No. Moses pointing to the one. In fact, Deuteronomy tells us that very thing. After me, is going to, there's going to be someone coming like me. But you need to listen to him. <laughs> he says, he's pointing the people to the one who's yet to come. Notice the contrast in verse 5. Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant. Verse 6. But Christ as a son. Moses as a servant. Christ as a son. Is there any difference? Tell me. Is there any difference between a servant and a son? Any difference? Absolutely. Absolutely. Certain privileges you're probably uh, given in being a servant versus being a son. Okay? Christ as a son over his own house. Notice the, the prepositions. Moses was a servant in his house. Christ is, is a son over his own house. Over his own house. Well, wait just a moment. We said we saw back in verse 4, he who built all things is God. Seems like right here in verse 6 now, the writer is trying to, and, and does, I think very well, make a statement of divinity. The one who built the house, he says, is God, verse 4. And then he says in 6, Christ as a son over his own house. Well, how is it that he's over his own house? I thought God built it. If we flip backwards to chapter 1, verse 3, we see that this son who has spoken in the last days, he has been appointed, what? Heir of all things. He's been granted all authority in heaven and on earth, right? So it is true that God built all things. He who built all things is God. If he who built all things is the Christ, is the Messiah... He's making a statement about who he is. He's God. And he's already talked about in chapter 2, this same son is also man. He's God and he's man. Both. Consider 
our confession. Consider who this Christ is, the writer is saying. And also consider the shift in verse 6. Right here we see a shift take place. All right, he's talking about what it is we consider in verse 1. It's kind of as he's talked about the, the, the object of our confession, Christ. It's kind of opened up this fuller, more big picture here of greater than, more superior to Moses. And then he gets to the middle of verse 6. After he talks about Christ as a son over his own house. Whose house we are all. Listen to this. This starts to get real personal now. Whose house we are. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Reminds me of uh, shades of 1 Peter 5. Steadfast in the faith. If we hold fast whose house we are. We turn with me for just a moment to uh, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. I want to begin reading verse 19. Listen to what Paul says. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Listen about this household of God that Paul describes. Having been built... On What was this household of God built on? Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So you see, those who have gone before are not deemed unnecessary or unworthy. or No, they're very important. They're very significant. This was built upon them. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. In other words, without him, the house isn't... What it's intended to be. It's not. Jesus Christ, chief cornerstone. Keep reading. In whom, that's in Christ. In whom the whole building, those who are no longer strangers, but are members now. The whole building being fitted together, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom, in this Jesus, you also, he's speaking here to the group of Ephesians, you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. You see, there's a building process that's talked about here in Ephesians. I believe they're very comparable. I think they're speaking to some of the same ideas and concepts of what the Hebrew writer is getting at. Just as Christ is a son over his own house, says, whose house we are. We are a part of this house. We are joint heirs with Christ, aren't we? If we're in Christ. Whose house we are if we hold fast to confidence. Now, one writer here I think is helpful. Uh, Stedman in his commentary uh, speaks to this, what seems to be a, a very difficult phrase at the end of six if we hold he says the if has troubled many people for it seems to imply that being a member of Christ's house can be lost after it's gained by wavering in courage or hope but the statement and I love this is so helpful to be able to see the statement is more likely descriptive rather than conditional 
In other words, it tells us that courage or boldness and the demonstration of hope in word and deed is the continuing mark of those who belong to Christ. That's what that person looks like. That's the continuing mark. The one who holds fast the confidence. F.F. Bruce in his commentary, he says that nowhere in the New Testament, more than here, speaking of Hebrews, do we find such repeated insistence on the fact that continuance in the Christian life is the test of reality. Stumbling from faith is precisely, he says, what the author of Hebrews fears may happen to his readers. And hence his constant emphasis on the necessity of their maintaining fearless confession and joyful hope. So this if being not, not, not conditional, not an if in terms of the conditional, but an if in terms of describing a continuing mark of those who belong to Christ. We'll see this come back into play in verse 14. The call is to consider this Christ and having spoken of the house to which the brethren belong. He issues a warning in verse 12. You see the warning, beware. And the precursor to the warning is an excerpt from history in verses 7 through 11. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, the Holy Spirit, by the way, is the, uh, the co-author of the scriptures, right? Holy Spirit. David's actually the one who writes this psalm in Psalm 95. But the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation. I'll read that again because sometimes we miss this. I was angry with that generation not an individual that generation and said they always go astray in their heart they draw near with their lips but their heart is far from me they have not known my ways so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest If you look at Psalm 95, you'll notice that in Psalm 95, the, the subtitle, which sometimes is accurate, sometimes not, put in there by man, a call to worship and obedience. Well, the first six and a half verses is just that. It's a call to worship. But the last four and a half verses speak to what I just read here in Hebrews Chapter 3, 7 through 11. It ends in Psalm 95. It says, for he's our God. We are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. And then he says, it's almost like a, you know, it's it's different at that point. It goes then to today, if you will hear his voice. And he goes on and and says these same things that you can see in Hebrews chapter 3. Why would he include that in this psalm? I mean, some might think, man, he just, that was a, great worship psalm and all of a sudden it just got blown out of the water it's a pretty stern rebuke I believe he's saying something there because he's coupling worship with what happened 
back in Exodus 17. That's where we can find what it was writing about the psalmist. So the Hebrew writer in chapter 3 is writing about a psalm, Psalm 95. The psalmist writing about an event that happened in Exodus 17. They're using the scriptures. Okay? But as we look at this text and we see that our worship is intricately connected to whether or not we are considering and holding fast to this one that we've professed. And he's using history. He's pointing back to Exodus 17 and saying, hey, don't harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. You know, the, the interesting thing when you go back to Exodus 17, they were at Rephidim by Mount Sinai. There's no water. Remember the story? Right? There's no water. They're complaining. Moses says, why are you complaining and, and contending with me? Why are you tempting the Lord? And the people thirsted for water and they wanted to know why you brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children. Moses cried out to the Lord. By the way, side note, by the way, this is one chapter after he's provided them bread from heaven. This is a couple chapters removed from the exodus, from the, the miracle, parting the waters, crossing over. People are grumbling. People are complaining. God gives Moses instruction on what to do. Strike the rock, water will come out and the people will drink. So Moses did that. Exodus 17 verse 7 says, So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah. Massa and Meribah. In fact, if you look at verse 8 of chapter 3, we see in verse 8 of chapter 3 in Hebrews, when it says, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. That word there um, has in mind uh, Meribah. And in the day of trial, Massa is referencing that very event in Exodus chapter 17. But listen, it says, because of the contention, I'm back in Exodus 17, because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? Think about how that would have profaned a holy God. Is the Lord among us or not? I just described what he'd just done. And these people are, are complaining. These people are angry. They want to go back to Egypt. Things getting hard. Testing God. Trying Him. And they saw what He had done. Consider the confession... The confession, consider who it is we are confessing. Consider what great things he has done. And before he gets to that word in verse 12, beware, he gives us an example from history. We need to learn our lessons from history, especially as it pertains to the people of God. Verse 10, Hebrews 3 says, I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they have not known. That known is the word for gnosko. It's an experiential knowledge. They've not known my ways. I was reminded there of that, that phrase that Jesus gives in, in the Sermon on the Mount. There's going to be a day when some say, Lord, Lord, didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I cast out demons in your name? And he's going to say, away from me, I never knew you. I never at any time had a relationship with you.
Thus his anger. He swore in his wrath that they shall not enter his rest. What's the next word? And by the way, context-wise, his rest, in terms of what we're talking about, uh, the rest of entering into the promised land, Canaan. We also know that he's going to be talking about rest here, even into chapter 4. He'll make mention of a Sabbath rest. He'll also make mention more of a, an eternal final rest for God's people. But for here, in terms of context, that rest that he's talking about is specific to entering into the land that he'd promised. The very next word in verse 12 then is beware. So he gives the picture of what happened to the people in the past. And he's putting it before his Jewish audience who would have known Psalm 95. Probably had it memorized. Probably was a little bit painful to read in light of what happened to that generation. Out of all that perished in that generation, there were but two who crossed over. You remember who they were, don't you? Caleb and Joshua. Beware, brethren. That's the second key word. Beware, lest there be in any of you. Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Beware. Watch out. Be alert to. Brethren, beware. That's the, that's the urgent call here. To the brethren, to beware, lest there be found in any of you an evil heart. Evil here is the word, uh, not your general word, uh, for evil, but this is uh, the word evil, paneros, which is used um, of the evil one. And it really has in mind one who is not simply set on himself doing evil, but one who is desirous to do evil and bring others into the same mess that you're in. Takes it a bit further. And so as it's pertaining to the text here, Lest there be in any of you an evil heart. An evil heart. Where, where you are, are so bent on not just yourself walking this way. But in having others come with you. You're set on this. Beware lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. See that come back in verse 19. An evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Departing. It's an interesting word. This is another difficult verse. So can we bounce in and out of this and depart and make a profession, confession and, and not be, are we, are we not? Again, that's why it's important, I think, for us to look at the word and the meaning of words. In the New King James, the word is Departing. But really the word is made up of two words. Aphistemi, uh, apa, uh, from, and uh, histemi, to stand. 
to, to stand off from really is the idea. To stand off from. So it's not necessarily... Departing is, is, may not be the best word here for us to grasp the writer's intention. Beware, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in standing off from the living God. In fact, that, that same root word is, is the word where um, apostasy comes from. It's a turning away, turning away from that which you had one time been walking in, reverting to not, not simply a, a new faith system, but a faith that is in contradiction to the one that you used to walk in. To stand off from. Beware, lest there be in any of you what was in the children of God, this generation in particular, whom God was angry, his wrath was set against. Beware that that is not in, in you, this evil heart of unbelief. And standing off from the living God. Because you see, the people of God had every opportunity to see the hand of God at work. He was working mightily in their midst. Friends, the same God who worked in the midst of his people back then is the same God who is still working today in your midst. My question is, are you standing off from God? The question is not, has he left? It's never, that's never the question. Because he's a faithful God. The question is, are you walking with him? Or are you standing off from him? The living God. Consider... Beware, warning, warning. If, you know, this is such, and he's going to come back to the questions as he concludes. This is a huge warning. If I could this morning, somehow, some way, get your attention and have a sign and have it made in such a way, I would craft some kind of bright neon sign and have it blink and blink and blink. And so, it would be a warning. Wake up. Don't let what happened to the people of God, back in Exodus 17, as recorded in Psalm 95. Don't let that kind of evil heart in unbelief be evidence in your own life. Because the God who was wrathful then toward that is the same God who's going to be wrathful today toward that very same thing. Sin. Disobedience, stubbornness, stiff-necked. Those are some good Old, term, Old Testament terminologies. Stiff-necked. Think about Stephen standing before the people before he was about to get stoned. And he just called them out on it, didn't he? Stiff-necked people. Stubborn. Refusing to hear. Well, the third word is right in the next verse. So beware is followed up by, but exhort one another daily. 
while it is called today. There's the reference to today. While it's called today. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. It goes on in 14 and he says, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Exhort one another daily. Exhort. If we're to exhort one another daily, what's the connect here between the warning and, the, and what follows in, in exhortation? The connect seems to be that if we are speaking into each other's lives as partakers of the heavenly calling, as holy brethren, seems to be that exhorting one another daily not just on a Sunday. Sunday's good, but not just Sunday. Daily. I believe the reference to daily, you know what it means? Daily. Daily. It means more than just one day a week. Well, why is that so important? He tells us why it's so important. Exhort one another daily while it's called today. While you have your today. Tomorrow we might get another today. And we need to be about exhorting each other while we have it today, lest any of you be hardened. He's writing this, the construction is such that what has been going on, he's telling them to, to, to stop doing what they're doing. They, they've not been doing this and exhorting them to do this, keep doing this. Need to do this so that in light of the, in light of the warning that I've just described to you, but also... Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. That word deceitfulness has in mind a trick or a stratagem. Well, what would be the trick or the stratagem of sin? Well, the trick or stratagem of sin might be, in this instance, in this context, for one who thinks that they've made a profession of faith and they think that they are in Christ. They are one of the holy brethren. They are one of the partakers. When in reality, the trick... They've been standing off from God. You see, that's why at the beginning the writer has called us to consider, to fix our mind attentively, continually upon our confession. And the object being Christ. Exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we, and here's verse 14, another hard verse. Ties into what we talked about earlier in partakers in verse 1. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Again, another what seems to be conditional statement. But I do believe it's, it's viewed in the same way as what we saw in verse 6. In terms of it being more of a descriptive than conditional statement. It's descriptive of who we are as a child of His. For we have become partakers The idea here, in light of the tense of the verb, it's a perfect verb, partake. We have become partakers. What's that mean? Well, perfect tense has in mind something that was completed in the past and now still has present day results. So, in other words, we could read it. For we became partakers, past, and now are present of Christ. Make sense? 
the writer seems to be most concerned about their past and concerned about their present. Not so much, at least in this immediate, about the future. Although no doubt about the past and the present is going to be a close connector to what happens in the future. But he seems to be talking here specifically about their past and concerned about their present living. We have become and now are partakers of Christ, participators of Christ. We are joint heirs with Christ, that idea, right? We are participators with Christ. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end, the beginning of our confidence. Listen, I believe that those to whom he's writing, just like today, if we were to put out, you know, when you first held on to and said yes to and confessed the name of Jesus, there was a kind of living, maybe you can think back to that time, a kind of living that you recall, that you remember, that you were walking and flourishing and growing in the Lord Jesus. The writer, I believe, is calling attention to hold to the beginning. For those who in the past held to what they confessed and who are now living what they confessed in the past and they're now living in the present, their confession... That is the the makeup and the marker, if you will, of one who is in Christ. One who is, shall we say, saved. If we remember the the message from Piper from several weeks ago, it was in the beginning of January. But he preached these two verses in 12 and 13 primarily. And he was talking about the, 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 the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints and how important that is. And yes, on one hand, you have a God who is able to keep that which is committed to him. And on the other hand, the corollary of that truth is that the saints are called to persevere all the way to the end. And that a determining mark of understanding and being able to awareness of who is in Christ. As such, verse 14, verse 6, as it speaks to being a partaker... There's, there's somewhat there if we hold fast the confidence, the, the condition that is unfulfilled because it's not yet been fulfilled all the way to the end, has it? But he's calling them to take a regard to what they've said in the past, what they've done in the past, and calling them to now live in the present as they've made confession that Christ is Lord He closes 16 through 19. He's called them to consider who they are, who the object of their confession is, Christ. He's shown how Christ is better than Moses and superior to Moses. He's given an example from history about what happened to a people who stood off from God who refused God, who refused to hear. They were a non-persuasible folk. How's that? They didn't want to hear. They were stubborn and rebellious. And in light of that, he calls the listener to beware, lest you fall into the same thing that these people fell into. And as a remedy for that, coupled with the beware He exhorts them to be 
with one another daily. Exhort one another daily. To help remedy this situation. To see that, that none are being hardened through the deceitfulness or tricks of sin. Look at the series of questions he closes with. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? He includes Moses here again. And it's just mentioned in here, but I can't help but think as I hear Moses' name in the question. By the way, he gives a question and then he gives an answer by way of question. Did you notice that? Okay. The question is, who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came, that generation, who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Friends, do you remember that Moses didn't get to enter in? To me, it ties back into another reason why this Christ is superior to Moses. Because this Christ was obedient all the way to the finish line. Now with whom was he angry 40 years? Question. Was it not with those who sinned? So we have rebellion and we have sin. Whose corpses fell in the wilderness? Answers again by way of question. And then look at 18. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? The promised land speaking here. But to those who did not obey. To those who did not obey, the word obey there is, is, has in mind that idea of not being persuadable, not willing to hear. They heard, but they weren't willing to hear and change course. They were not willing, those who did not obey. In fact, we see in verses 16, 17, and 18 somewhat of a progression from rebelling to sin, which led to physical death. And then the not entering into his rest that he promised. This promised land. To whom did he swear they would not enter that promised rest? But to those who chose not to be persuaded by his word. So we see, this is the conclusion of the matter in 19. So we see that they could not enter in. Talking about that rest. The promise. They couldn't enter in because of unbelief. It's almost like we have bookends from 12 to 19 of that unbelief. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in standing off from the living God. In verse 19, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. You know, there's another passage of Scripture, friends, that speaks to this example that's been given in the text. I love the fact that God, in His sovereignty and His great wisdom, provides out of the treasury that He has available to us in His Word examples and examples and examples of people and events that are intended for us to learn from. I just want to close with this. Corinthians chapter 10. 
I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink. They drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. It's an interesting statement. He's talking about Old Testament, and yet he's still talking about what they were in. Participators in Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. Listen, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Do not become idolaters as were some of them. Verse 8, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition. Upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The writer in Hebrews has given to us an example couched right in the midst of these three words consider, beware, and exhort. And he's given us a picture, a very clear picture of a people who chose to walk a certain way. A way that was contrary to the ways of God. A way that they knew. A way that they had heard time and time again from this merciful, great God. And that they chose, they chose to stand off from him. Friends, this morning will you consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. The one who served as a son over his own house. Will you also beware? Lest there be in any of you what was in the people of God back in the day of Moses in Exodus 17. An evil heart of unbelief and standing off from the living God. How? Can we stand off from such a powerful and mighty God? One way we can remedy that is by exhorting one another daily, persevering, calling one another to stand calling one another to keep going, calling one another to not have anything to do with deeds of darkness calling one another to walk in the light as he is in the light. For this God that we serve is a holy God. We've been deemed holy brethren. Now it's time we live like it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the instruction in your word. It's a powerful message. It's a sobering message. It's a message that calls us to action. It calls us to remember what has gone on in the past. It calls us to look closely at this confession that we made in our lives. 
assuming that we have made that confession of faith. Some here today have not yet made that confession. For those here who are in that situation, Lord, I pray that you would impress upon them that same urgency to make their confession, to say the same thing as you in regard to your son Jesus and that now our lives would be lived in a different way, not in the futility of our thinking as the Gentiles, but we would put on the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would not have any desire to participate in the deeds of the flesh, but Lord, we would desire to please you all of our days while we have another today. Father, I pray the urgency in the text would just be upon us even as we leave here today, as we wake up in the morning and the next day and the next day that we would be reminded that you have been gracious to give us another today. And I pray with every today that you give us, we would steward it well, walking in the light as you were in the light. Father, we are a part of your household. And I pray, Lord, that you would do whatever you deem necessary Perhaps it's discipline. Perhaps it's a circumstance we're going through that you're desiring us to learn from. Whatever it may be, Lord, I pray that we would hold tightly to you, that we would resist the evil one, that we would remain steadfast in the faith all the way to the end. We pray in that process, Lord, that your name would be glorified, that you would get great honor We need your help, Lord, in this. And we thank you that you've given to us your Holy Spirit. You've equipped us with all that we need for godliness in this life. Through your spirit, through your word, and through your people. That's another way that you've provided assistance and help for us in this walk. And I pray, Lord, we wouldn't discount what you have so graciously given to us. So, Father, we just say thank you. We declare our love for you. Father, we are just as the people back in the days of Joshua. And thinking about that gathering at Shechem, the renewal of the covenant. Perhaps today, Lord, would be an opportunity for each of us to renew what started some days ago, some months ago, some years ago, perhaps. And that, Lord, we would take close inventory to walk, the walk in light of the confession. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.